We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls to answer your Bible questions, whatever's on your heart or mind, what we believe as Christians, why we believe it. Maybe you've got questions about passages in the Scripture. We'll do the best that we can to answer. All you need to do is dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions at cal- by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app using the hands-free feature. One button, call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Wednesday, we've got our Old Old Testament Bible study tonight uh, here at 7 o'clock. And then, of course... uh, Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with me. Our first eight-day edition since uh, we got out of the hospital and are home from surgery. So Paula will probably have a whole bunch to say, and she will be with me tomorrow. Ladies, it's a day that we set aside especially, not exclusively, but especially for you. And if she can encourage you, or if you have any questions at all, feel free to call. We would love to hear from you. One more time, 340-9585. Let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. We've had some good ones. Here's a question from our mobile app that came in anonymously that deals with the question that we took yesterday. Um, He or she said, you just said that you believe there's a time coming soon that God will stop sin immediately. Judging it right there, you're speaking of the millennial reign. Uh, Yeah, generally anonymous, I'm speaking of the millennial reign, but even before that, uh, you can read about it on the Mount of Olives, um, um, the, the Olivet Discourse, uh, Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus comes back, sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and destroys his enemies. With a word, he destroys all of his enemies. Then the great supper of, of the Lord will happen when the birds will come to, to, to clean up the earth, those who were destroyed by, by Jesus. And that's when a total stopping, ceasing of sin will happen immediately. It will continue, of course, through the millennial reign. And uh, when people sin the millennial reign, and believe it or not, they will, um, the justice will be swift and it will be sure and it will be perfect. So that's exactly what I was talking about, Anonymous. Um, From the time Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 all the way through the millennial reign, that's when Jesus will deal with sin completely. You know, one of the things, and we'll get to a phone call in just one second, Ron, if you can hold on. Um, One of the things that we think sometimes, because there's so much teaching on grace, and we should be teaching a lot about grace, but I think grace is misrepresented like it costs nothing. And sometimes I think that we believe God is going to overlook our sin. He didn't overlook our sin. 
He took it himself and was judged with the full wrath of God poured out on him for our sin, that we could be just, that we could be made perfect in righteousness. So nobody ever gets away with anything, and we get too casual with our sin, like, well, God understands it, and that is a misunderstanding. Jesus, through um, the prophet, says that, that the grace of God has appeared, the New Testament prophet, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is his letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus. It, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. It's very important we understand have a good theology regarding sin. Sin offends God. Sin breaks God's heart. Sin puts us in danger. And sin, that we might be without sin, costs God everything. So we've got to understand that theology of sin. Thank you, Anonymous. I hope that explains it. Let's go to Mason County and talk with Ron on line one. Ron, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Good to hear your voice again. I hope you have Thank you, Ron. speedy, speedy recovery and you get back running 100 and as quick as you can. Hey, I've got a, <laughs> I don't, I'm driving here and I, I don't have the exact scripture. I think it's in Second Peter. It's right after he's talking about a thousand or one day is like a thousand years he said it's god will that all repent and come to him can if can i extend that scripture and say it's god's will that all people be healed by him um yeah ron no you can't um it says um, uh, in Second Peter chapter three verse eight. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is a, like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. Um, and then He goes on to describe the day of the Lord, that is always the day when Jesus sits his feet on the Mount of Olives. So, no, this passage has nothing to do with healing whatsoever. It is uh, certainly not God's perfect will when he created everything with uh, with absolute perfection, um, that sin, disease, any of that would enter in the world. But the fact is, at the fall, all of those things did happen. And in fact, God warned us about those things through Adam and Eve. He said, the day you eat of the fruit of this forbidden tree, you will surely die. And that's when not only did Adam and Eve begin to die, but it's also when our world began to um, groan. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that the whole earth is groaning, awaiting uh, its resurrection, its cleansing. But it is uh, it, the idea that that it's God's will always to heal or it's never God's will for us to be sick. It's a fallacious idea. It is uh, propagated by false teachers, mostly health and wealth teachers, prosperity teachers. Um, and unfortunately, Ron, it's just not true. So uh, does that answer? Yes, sir. No, I okay. think you went right where I wanted you to go. So I appreciate that. I really Thank you, Ron. I always very, very enjoy much. your comment. Thank you. <laughs> appreciate it. Appreciate your well wishes. Good, good to hear my voice again. Such as it is, I'm still dealing with my throat healing as a result of the tube being crammed down my throat. But um, good question. Let me go to another one while I'm going there. Let me just re-emphasize one more time. It's really important we understand and deal with this issue of sin and healing realistically. You know, we lean too often on the, well, God can heal. God can do anything. Yeah, but, but he chooses not to. We, we pray for healing continuously for people who are afflicted. We have a, a lady in our church who has been um, virtually at death's door a half dozen times uh, in the hospital so much in the cancer ward in Houston in the hospital so much she suffered so much and yet as we pray continually over and over um, she continued to have um, recoveries that defied medical explanation this last time in particular um, it was time to put everything in order. She was going to die. That was what they said. And yet, 
she came back to us and she looks better now than she's ever looked. Now, we don't know if this is a complete healing by the Lord, but we know that God heard our prayers and he spared us sorrow and granted mercy. At the same time, we have other people in our church who we are praying for just as diligently, whose cancer hasn't been healed. We have lost some in our church from cancer. So God answers some prayers. He doesn't answer others. What's the difference between yes and no? We, we don't know that. Until we can look behind the curtain, until we can see the fullness of the heart of God, we won't ever know. But here's what we know, that sometimes God heals, but never are we promised that we can be healed. There's so much dangerous theology out there. Here's a question from our email inbox from Thomas. Pastor Ron, what does it mean to seek the heart of Jesus? I was told this in a dream by someone who I think was the angel of God. While we stood next to an empty grave with a blank headstone. Um, This dream came to me the night after Jesus' angel prevented my tire from blowing out. Uh, I love you, Pastor Ron, and send a hug. Um, Thomas, these are really important things. Now, um, you said this came to you the night after you were prevented from your tire blowing out, and the implication here is that God saved your life. And I have my own experience. I've experienced angelic intervention from keeping um, Paula and me from going off a cliff in Bible college. No explanation for the reason. Our truck was going off the edge, off a cliff, and we're talking uh, uh, more than a thousand foot drop, uh, off a cliff in a storm, and suddenly, as it got right to the edge, it started turning uh, counterclockwise uh, and, and ended up with us right in the middle of the lane to go back down the hill as though God was telling us, look, don't be silly, don't drive in this kind of a storm. So the fact that you got this afterwards, this dream, is important. Now, I'm not a dream person in the sense that I think every dream is from God or that we over-spiritualize our dreams. But this is one, Thomas, that I would really, really take to heart. Uh, When you were standing next to an empty grave with a blank headstone, this wasn't God saying to you, I saved you. What he was saying was, I saved you and now seek the heart of Jesus. Now, if I were you, I would take that very seriously. To seek the heart of Jesus means to know who he is and to live what you learn. To seek the heart of Jesus means to take his advice. And when he said to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. To seek the heart of Jesus means that you have to be a, a godly ambassador in your home, in your workplace. To seek the heart of Jesus means that you've got to love the people that he loves and you've got to be in a place where you can be usable for his glory. It means that we have to say no to sin so that we can then say yes to righteousness. And I think, Thomas, this was the Lord after having prevented your tire from blowing out saying to you, here's the direction for your life. Now, anybody who's listened to this program for any length of time knows I don't go off on dreams. I don't speak for God. But when I first got your question today, I really believe that was the interpretation that the Lord gave me. So for whatever that's worth, test it against the Word of God. But it's almost like He saved you for a purpose, and that purpose would seem to imply that you need some correction. So it's something that you need to take very seriously. Examine your life. Examine your heart. Paul says, examine it daily to see that we're in the faith. And then, Thomas, you've heard me say this a thousand times. Just be with Jesus and love the people he loves and love them so completely and do it because he told you to seek the heart of Jesus. Very, I think, I had a sense from the moment you said sent this, um, I had the sense that this was a word, a very direct word for you from the Lord. So, Thomas, pray about it. Let me know what you think. Thanks a lot. 340-9585. Let's go to San Antonio and talk with Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. 
Oh, I want to ask you about the scripture. It says First Timothy chapter two, uh, verses twelve to fourteen. Okay, hold on a minute. Let me get there. Okay, First Timothy two twelve through fourteen. What's your question? Well, well, I um, um, my question is, and I know, uh, I don't know what churches now, but there's two churches. You know, there's a church here, and they have two really happy. Yeah. And and uh, and I, I told this. Yeah, one time they didn't have that, but I told a friend of mine that goes to that church, and I used to go there, and I said, look, we're not supposed to have women pastors, according to the Bible. And he told me, well, that was written, that was written when women were taught the gospel. I said, no, no, they can be teachers. They can be teachers in the church. They can teach the gospel, but they cannot teach it. Jimmy, let me let me read the let me read the passage. Yeah, let me read the passage for our audience, and then we will. Uh, I'll talk about it. Um, Paul says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent." For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived, and became a sinner. Now, the idea here is very quick, very clearly. Um, it, 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 there's no way to argue. Um, there's no hermeneutic that allows you to, 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 to just dismiss this passage. In fact, the context in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is order in the church. This is the way churches are supposed to be set up. Timothy, as you know, Jimmy, was Paul's young protege, and, and Timothy would be the first pastor, the ruling pastor in the, the city of, of Ephesus. Uh, when Paul left, he would have a very important role in the early church. Paul... Uh, his mentor uh, would say to Timothy, here's the way things are supposed to be set up. Now, here's the problem. We have decided, after 2,000 years of church history, that it doesn't mean what it says it means. But it says exactly what it means. And we have just decided churches that have women for pastors, who, by the way, don't have pastors. Those are churches without pastors. Those are churches that are operating outside of the blessing and the will of God. So when he's talking about, and do not permit a woman to teach you have authority over men, the idea in Greek there is to teach from a position of authority. And by definition, giving someone the title pastor is a position of authority. Now, we have, Jimmy, women who teach in the church. We have some wonderfully gifted teachers in the church. And and uh, we use them all the time. They counsel other women in the church. They teach other ladies in Bible studies. And, and uh, we have a very active women's ministry here. And they take turns teaching. Uh, it's very, very fruitful. But none of those women would ever want to stand in front of a mixed audience, male and female, and uh, and 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 teach in a Sunday message, uh, for example. Now, one time I think Jimmy, in all of our years here, Paul and I, on a Wednesday night, um, we took the stage together because we were talking about marriage. The passage of scripture that I'd arrived at was marriage, and so we sort of did a mini version of what we do when we travel around and do marriage conferences. I made sure the church understood that this was an exception. This wasn't Pastor Paula. Um, just yesterday, she was called Pastor Paula again, and it, it, it's, it's dangerous because we need people to understand that she's the pastor's wife. She's not the pastor. And yet we have decided in our forward thinking, our progressive thinking, church culture, that that's somehow unfair. Well, God explains it. And the reason I read the entire passage is because he goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to Genesis, to establish the reasons why. Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman. So this is a result of the curse. It doesn't mean that women can't be pastors, or it doesn't mean that they, they, can't, they wouldn't be good pastors, rather. It doesn't mean that they uh, aren't good teachers. It just means that this is one of those things that is a result of the fall of man. And when we want to do something God tells us not to do, the same answer 
way back then is the answer now. We've got to die to ourselves. And it is a tragedy that in our church culture we have women who anoint themselves as pastors. We have churches who are willing to put up with it. Um, many times these are very charismatic women. They're very gifted women. But they're simply operating in their own strength and not operating by the power of the Spirit. Now, when I say that, Jimmy, the argument always comes back, well, well, people still get saved and there's still fruit being produced. Well, that's because God is gracious and he cares about the people. But here's what I know about the character of God. If somebody's in a church with a woman pastor and that person uh, is blessed, that person comes to faith in Christ, as they grow in the knowledge of who God is, as they grow in the knowledge of God's word, they would get out of that church and then go to a church that is operating functionally as God intended. Christ is the head of church, not my wife. Christ is the head of the church, not Pastor On. Our responsibility is to do things as he said that they're to be done. And, uh, Jimmy, the only thing that we can do is pray for those people. Now, they're, they're saved. Uh, most of the women who call themselves pastors that I know love Jesus with all of their heart. But they don't love him enough to obey him in this one area. And it is a shame because everybody in that church, because one woman has usurped the authority that only belongs to God, the shame is that the rest of the church is getting ripped off as a result. It's a pretty heavy thing, especially when there's no way you can read that passage of scripture understanding the context of it there's no way that you could read it and say well that's not for today in 1 Corinthians Jimmy the apostle Paul says that that uh, women should 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 cover their heads and women should be silent in the church there he was addressing a local situation there's no reference to genesis but here as we're talking about church order this is how church is to be done by going all the way back to Genesis to lay the foundation, he's laying down a rule that's never going to change. And that matters a great deal. And anyone, any church, no matter how much they love God, they are functioning well below the blessings that Jesus wants for them. So, Jimmy, thank you very, very much. Let's go to... Oh, line two is gone. Anonymous, if you're still listening, um, we've got a few minutes left in this half. Uh, you can call back or we'll get you at the top of the break. Um, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Rich. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we read that God says to try him or test him in regards to the giving of tithes and offerings. What exactly does this mean? Well, Malachi, you remember, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and there's going to be 400 years when God is silent. Now, I, I point that out because evidently they didn't do this. Malachi, as are the other minor prophets, are, are, are letters of correction, you're doing this, but do this. In this particular case, what God is doing is he's um, scolding the people for not taking care of the house of God. Their own houses they take care of. They're eating every day, but the priests are not eating. The house of God is being ignored. And God is saying, look, this is wrong, and you know it's wrong. This is Old Testament under the law. You owe a tenth to the, to the temple. You owe another tenth for, for this. You, you support the Levites. But they weren't doing it, and God is simply challenging them. Test me on this and see if I won't pour out a blessing that would fill many storehouses. Now, the New Testament principle is if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you will reap generously. It can't be the motive for giving. But God says, it's simple, here's my nature, my nature is to bless. If you trust me with your resources, then I'll pour out a blessing on you. The same principle applies. Now, we're not under the law of the tithe. I think you probably know that, Rich. But at the same time, we can't outgive God. 
if we give, if our motive is right, and the only reason we could we should give to the Lord is to give because of everything He's done for us, not expecting or needing anything back from Him. If in fact we'll give simply because He says to give. I'm not talking about a tenth either. If under the law a tenth was required, how much more should we who are under grace give? Paul says we need to offer our bodies, our entire beings to the Lord, our time, our talent, our treasure. The man and the woman who does that will find out that God provides abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. So that's what's happening in the book of Malachi. The people aren't doing their responsibility under the law to support the house of God nor the, the, the priests of God. And God is simply saying, look, let's have a change of focus. You do this. Test me on this and see what happens. And the result would have been, as God promised, a blessing that would be um, innumerable. For us, we've already received the blessing, so we should give abundantly beyond that 10%. Rich, thanks for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program. 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand In for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left. We've got some great questions to be seeing, but we always prefer your live calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Before I go to the next question, at the break we received a text from somebody in our church. Uh, her husband is stuck in Hawaii. Uh, I've had uh, emails from people uh, throughout the day. We've got 20 Calvary chapels in the Hawaiian Islands and lots of friends there. And, of course, because we're in a military community here in San Antonio, a lot of the people that we dearly love are there in Hawaii. And there's a Category 5, I think it's downgraded now to a Category 4, um, hurricane that's headed for uh, the Big Island, maybe as early as uh, overnight, and then supposed to take a turn toward uh, Maui and, and Honolulu. So please keep the people in Hawaii uh, in your prayers. Here is a question from our mobile app from Caleb. How do you define and understand the providence of God? Caleb, let me answer that from a New Testament perspective. Here is the providence of God. God works all things together for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That's the providence of God. Now, let me share why I started with that. Too often, we look at the providence of God or the sovereignty of God as though we are uh, puppets who have no say-so in the matter, no partnership with God in in the things that, that happen on this earth. And so we become spectators of that providence instead of beneficiaries of that providence. And what we need to understand in terms of this, the providence, or I use the term sovereignty more often, of God, is that as Christian, it's our responsibility to run right in the middle of that providence. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, I call them by name, and they follow me. That's being proactive. And too often this providence idea is, well, I'm just going to, whatever God's going to do, he's going to do. So I'm just going to sit around and wait till I find out what he's going to do. And that's to misunderstand the providence of God at all. I had a conversation today via email with a lady who's hurting a bit and some things going on in her life. She says, how do I know I'm making the right choices? And I just said, look, if your heart is right with God, you don't have to make the right choice. Be with Jesus. He'll redirect your steps. He's the one who began a work and will finish the work. That's the providence or the sovereignty of God. But what we have to do is be with him where he is. And our whole misunderstanding of this idea of God's providence has turned us, as I said, into a group of spectators who are just waiting for God to drop the next bombshell on us. And that's not at all what the providence of God is all about. 
God's will eventually is going to be done. But how that will affects your life is a choice that we get to make. Whether or not we're part of what God is doing is a choice that we have to make. It's not something, well, God wants me to do it, he'll make me do it. So, Caleb, it's important you understand that Romans chapter 12 says that if we offer our bodies to Jesus as a living sacrifice, isn't it great that he doesn't ask us to die? He asks us to live for him. If we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, then we'll know what that perfect will of God is. We'll be able to test and approve his perfect, pleasing, acceptable will. And then he tells us how to do it by renewing our minds daily in the washing of the word. And I like to think of that as new thinking. We have to reject the thinking of the old life. We have to reject the thinking of the world. And we've got to let our thinking, our attitudes, our minds be shaped and formed by the word of God. And then we will understand God's providence in all of its fullness. We won't have specific answers. We, we won't get any more clarity in terms of the overall big plan of God. He won't tell you what's going to happen in five years or ten years. But here's what happens. Every day, Caleb, that you walk in the will of God, every day, you keep doing it, ten years from now, you'll be exactly where he wanted you to be. God does not make us do things. He asks for our partnership in things. And this is something we have to understand clearly because we can get into a systematic theology of reformed thinking or Calvinism where we basically just sit back and wait for God to make us do stuff and and the fruit so quickly dries up. We stop telling people that God loves them because we don't know. Well, God's providence has nothing to do with you or with me being a spectator. Instead, he asks for our hand in partnership, and then in his providence, he takes us places and into experiences that we never dreamed possible. I'm a perfect example of that, Caleb. Um, I didn't want to come to Texas, but I was willing to come. And now I look back and see the providence of God that's been at work for these 23 and a half years. And all I can think of is, oh, Lord, what a wonderful plan you had. And you know, I think that's where God wants all of us to get. He wants us to get to that place where we look back and we think, how did I get here, Lord? This is such a wonderful thing. And we look back and we see that every day Jesus was just beckoning us to come to him, to follow him. And any theology, any systematic theology that suggests otherwise misses the heart of God completely. Here is a question from David. He said, how can we find a healthy balance when dealing with the devil? David, I love the question because it seems most Christians have such an unhealthy perspective one way or another. You know, the two extremes that we go to is one, we blame the devil for everything. The other extreme is that we ignore him and pretend that he's a fictional character. The devil is real. We need to respect his power. We need to be on guard. We're told over and over to take a stand against his schemes. We're, we're told to stand by putting on the full armor of God. We have to respect him, but we needn't fear him. Because when you're with Jesus, our big brother, big brother's jobs, I've said this on this program many times, big brother's jobs to protect their, their, their little brothers. Well, Jesus says that he's our big brother. That's Hebrews, by the way. And so we don't have to be afraid. If we're with Jesus, the devil can't mess with us. He'll huff and he'll puff and he'll lie and he'll give you nightmares and all those things. But if we remember that, well, wait a minute, I'm with Jesus. There's nothing he can do to me. Then we've found that healthy balance. Having said that, the minute we are out of God's will, we need to understand that he's going to be there, this bully, this devil. And he's going to be there and he's going to pound and he's going to pound and he's going to pound because his job is to ruin your life. His job is to destroy, to rob, to kill, to steal and destroy. So the healthy balance is respect him. Know that he's real, but understand clearly that there's nothing he can do to us if we're with Jesus. 
Let's go to the phones. Anonymous calling on line one from San Antonio. Thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hello. Hello, I can hear you. Thanks for taking my call. I uh-huh. wanted to let you know, first of all, that I enjoy your, your talk show. Um, every time I drive in my car, I turn it on, and I really uh-huh. enjoy and uh, learn a lot from, from you. I have a question, and I'll get off the air. Um, is there such thing as spiritual abuse? Um, yes, Anonymous, there, there is a such thing as spiritual abuse. Um, a spiritual abuse could be uh, a husband who uh, uses the Word of God to force his wife to do uh, sinful things. Um, spiritual abuse is a pastor who exercises um, um, authority that God never intended him to have in people's lives. Um, spiritual abuse comes from false teachers when they're teaching a doctrine and perverting the true word of God. So yes, spiritual abuse happens all the time. It happens um, in many, many churches. It breaks God's heart. Um, But uh, again, one of the things that we have as a weapon against spiritual abuse is the knowledge that we can have from the word of God about how things are supposed to be. So yes, there is spiritual abuse. It's very real, and sadly it happens uh, all the time in churches. But If it happens to you, you are a victim unnecessarily because if you were armed with the Word of God, for example, if you went to a church that was compelling you to give more money or a church that was was making you promises and and exercising uh, ungodly authority over your life, you don't have to let that happen because if you were in the Word of God, then you would know that that's an unhealthy church and you'd go somewhere else. So yes, spiritual abuse is real. Um, It happens all the time and it is shame and I think it breaks the Lord's heart. So you still on, does that answer your question? Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. I I have been reading a little bit on on it and uh, I just wanted to get your perspective on it and thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Anonymous. Thank you for calling. God bless you. You know, one of the things that we have to be careful of, there's always extremes. And in this um, social media world that we live in, uh, if you were to Google spiritual abuse, you should come up with all sorts of so-called Christian blogs that are demonstrating quite unchristian behavior. So what we have to do is be careful. You know, there are people that don't like to be under any kind of authority at all, and pastors are in a position of authority. Uh, I have to be able to stand before my, my church And with the heart of Jesus, I have to be able to say that I've not exercised any level of authority over people in our church that that uh, is ungodly or unbiblical. Um, And yet there will be all kinds of professing Christians who call everything relative to um, being under authority abuse. So just be careful with with uh, the extremes. But sadly, Spiritual abuse does exist. Here is a question, another anonymous one. Should I be taking communion if I have wicked thoughts and even blasphemous thoughts? Um, yeah, anonymous, you should, unless you are giving in to those thoughts or or unless you are blaspheming God. Now, the idea of partaking communion is a very sacred time when we come to the Lord's table. And Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, says that some in Corinth were sick and some had even died because they were participating in an unworthy manner. What he meant by that is they were participating while living in willful sin or in rebellion against God. Here's the problem, Anonymous. We can't control our thoughts, the thoughts that come in. They come from the outside. Satan plants thoughts, and he's very busy at church. He's very busy when you sit down to prayer. Uh, I think one of the times he is absolutely the busiest is when a church comes together to celebrate the Lord's table. And so when the wicked thoughts come, that doesn't mean you're, you're guilty of anything. You just have to recognize, identify where those thoughts come from. Take those thoughts captive, Paul says, and make them obedient to Christ. So if you have, let's just say, and you don't say these are sexual thoughts, but let's just say that a sexual thought comes in your mind or you're ready to take communion, you can just say, oh, Lord, I know where that comes from, but my heart and my mind belongs to you. 
That's how we take control or take that thought captive. The blasphemous thoughts, I don't know for sure what you mean by that, but remember that the enemy is always blaspheming God. So unless those thoughts are controlling you, then of course you should come to the table. And in fact, the, the bread and the cup are the answer for those thoughts. They represent the authority that we have um, given to us by our Lord, by his sacrifice, to deal with these thoughts. So there's no sin in having the thoughts. The sin would be giving in to the thoughts. And if instead, and Anonymous, I hope this really comforts you, when you have wicked thoughts and you take them captive and make them obedient to Christ and continue to serve the Lord, then I think that is when Jesus is the most pleased with you. That's what it is to fight in the Spirit. So yes, you should be taking communion. If you are giving in to any of those thoughts, it would be different. But even then, the beauty of grace is that you can say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for what I've done. And then instantly you're the guest of honor at the table of communion. So I hope that helps answer your question. That's a really important one. One of the things that I do every Communion Sunday, which is for us at Calvary Chapel, it's the first Sunday of every month. I let everybody know that that you may not be qualified to come to the table of Communion now, but simply by saying and meaning, you can't just be lip service, but meaning, I'm so sorry, God, forgive me. I messed up. I don't want to do that anymore. Then you quickly become the guest of honor at the table and how special that makes us feel, you know, every time, and every time is an exaggeration, but, but many, many times when I'm um, partaking of communion, I feel like Mephibosheth, a man who's been dropped, a man who's been crippled by life, and yet a man who's invited to take the seat of honor at the king's table every day for the rest of his life. Think about communion that way, it'll change you, I promise you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Raven. What one book has been the most influential in your life? Well, obviously the Bible, Raven, but I know that's not what you mean. So I'm going to give you two. Um, and both of them came at just the right time for me. Uh, very, very early, I picked up a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. It was a time as a brand new Christian where I was trying to sort out my, my theology. I was trying to figure out what was true and what wasn't true. And it was as though God dropped that book on my lap. And as I read it, I, I, I take a legal pad. I've always got a legal pad. And I just started filling it with notes. I went home that very night and said, Paula, boy, have we been taught a lot of wrong stuff. And we started going through those notes. So it came at just the right time. The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I recommend it very, very highly. Uh, The other book that's probably been even more influential in my life uh, in an ongoing basis has been uh, The Heart of the Apostle Set Free by a man named F.F. Bruce. F.F. Bruce, Um, B-R-U-C-E. It is a book that just thrilled my heart as I read it the first time and um, literally changed my walk with the Lord. So those are the two books, not just one, but um, I'm always a little reluctant to give book recommendations only because I'm afraid that people will read those books who aren't really reading their Bibles. The, The Bible is really the book that matters the most. Here's a question from Charles. Explain what purgatory means for Christians. Charles, this is the easiest question I'll get all month. Nothing. Purgatory is not real. It's a figment of the imagination of the Roman Catholic Church. It is a belief system that sort of holds up the rest of the unbiblical belief systems in the Catholic Church. And so purgatory means nothing for us because it simply does not exist. It is a lie. There's nobody there who's going to get a second chance. But the Catholic Church has sure used it for thousands of years to dupe people into gilding so they could build these 
monuments they have all over the world. It's 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 just a tragedy. So, Charles, it, it means nothing, paying no attention whatsoever. It is a Catholic doctrine, but it is a false doctrine for sure. Here is a question from Andrea. She says, Hebrews says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What exactly does it mean, and why don't we see the same kind of miracles as during Jesus' life? Also, does it mean that God still kills people for righteousness? Um, Andrew, I'm not sure. I can't, I can't really discern your heart here on this question. When it says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it doesn't mean that he does things the same way today as he did yesterday or forever as he did today or yesterday. It means that he doesn't change his character, his nature. Nothing changes. So this statement has nothing whatsoever to do with the methods of God. It has everything to do with the character and with the heart of God. So the reason we don't see the same kind of miracles is because the miracles that we read about during Jesus' ministry, the miracles that we read about during the book of Acts, those are miracles that validated the message that was being carried. Signs and wonders, signs point to something. Those miracles pointed to Jesus. In his ministry, he was advertising that he was the Christ promised by God. I fulfill the prophecies, but not only that. What did he tell John the Baptist when John began to doubt? Tell John that the blind see and the lame walk. Those are Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah, when he came, would do. Now, our problem, Andrea, is that we automatically think, well, he did it then for his disciples. He should do it for us now. Um, But we don't have that kind of promise. So what we need to do is understand the purpose of the miracles. Does God still do miracles today? Yes, he does. But certainly not like in the book of Acts. And certainly miracles, by definition, cannot be routine. And we kind of have this expectation that God owes us the spectacular, the supernatural. Instead, God simply wants us to follow him. Now, regarding this, the question, this is why I can't discern your heart. Does it mean that God still kills people for righteousness? Um, The answer is yes. There are people who sin unto death. But more to the point, there's a time coming. I talked about the very opening of the program today. There's a time coming when Jesus is going to destroy all on this earth who reject him with a single word. Just with a word, he's going to destroy them. Why? Because then it's time for judgment. Every time God killed people in the Old Testament, it was a judgment of God, a deserved, just judgment of God. He doesn't kill arbitrarily. He kills because we deserve it. The wages of sin is death. And when God judges, it's because we deserve it. And on that day of judgment, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will be completely, totally vindicated. And when we bow and when we confess... Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will, in effect, pronounce that is in his judgment, even when it's his judgment of us, he's perfectly just. So God doesn't arbitrarily kill. God simply judges, and the wages of sin is death. And we have time for one more question. This one comes from, uh, I've got three minutes. Alex, he said, if we go directly into the presence of God when we die, why do unbelievers have to wait to go to hell until after the millennial reign? Uh, Alex, the reason that they have to wait is because the, the, the lake of fire has not been created yet. When it's created, it's created for the devil and his angels, but also will be for all who reject Jesus Christ. It's the, the f- eternal place. I almost said the eternal resting place. There's no rest in hell. Um, until that time, because that happens at the end of the millennium, until that time, um, what we know is that unbelievers directly go to a place of torment. You can read about it in Luke chapter 16. There's 
two compartments in the abyss. One compartment is a place where the rich man is in torment in this fire, he said. And then there's another compartment called Abraham's bosom or paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. That place, paradise, is now empty. Jesus went and emptied it. He set the captives free. But that place of torment still exists. It's in the center of the earth. And it still exists. And until the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment that will determine the eternal destination of every person who's ever lived, until that moment they're in that place of torment until the moment they're cast into the lake of fire where that's where they will spend the rest of eternity. So I hope that answers your question, Alex. Um, There's always time. Here's a question I can do very quickly. We've got one minute, I think. One minute. Uh, Okay. Iris says, was Deborah married to Barak? Why was a woman chosen to lead, and does it, that mean that it's okay for women to be pastors? Um, let me answer just the first part on Iris. I'll pick up this question tomorrow on the program. Deborah was not married to Barak. Judges chapter 4, verse 5 says that her husband, his name was Lapidoth. Um, uh, Barak was, was like a general to her. She was a judge in Israel. But no, they were not married at all. So I'll get to the other part of the question because I think it's important tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Remember, tomorrow on the program on AM 630, The Word, Paula will be live in the studio on the date day edition of the program. We can't wait to hear what she has to say. May the Lord bless you and keep you. God willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Well,